Thanks, Deirdre. I didn't uh, get the accurate passages to Amy this week before we got the thing printed up, but I do want to read this, this top part, uh, verses 11 uh, and 12. The words of the wise are like goads, and like nails firmly fixed are the collected sayings. They are given by one shepherd. My son, beware of anything beyond these. Of making many books, there is no end, and much study is a weariness of the flesh. So those will be important verses as we go through the passage tonight. As Deirdre mentioned, this is our last week for the book of Ecclesiastes. We've been working through this book the entire summer. And before we jump to the the passage and the message for today, I want to just kind of summarize the overarching ideas that the book has has been instructing that we've been covering this summer. So the first one, uh, and there I think there are seven, seven big overarching ideas that uh, really contain the bulk of Solomon's observations of what it means to live life as a human being. So the first thing is to be human is to pursue satisfaction and happiness. That's an assumption. Every human being is pursuing these things, satisfaction and happiness. Uh, The second, what we believe will bring us happiness uh, doesn't actually provide it. So we have all these ideas about things that will make us happy if we pursue them, but in the end, uh, the author says they are all vain, and his observations and experience say that. And, and in fact, that, uh, that Harvard study on um, the good life or the happy life, that's been the study that's been going on for over 80 years, they actually say the th- same thing as well, that um, we kind of we know what will make us happy and what we should really be investing in family, some core basic things, but that we see all these things in the world believing at the time that they're going to make us happy. We pursue them, but it's all in vain because they don't provide it. And so because we spend so much time trying to be happy with things that don't make us happy or satisfied, then life is just full of weariness. We get, we get tired. We get tired of working for things that don't bring us any sort of satisfaction and happiness. Fourth thing is that there is a season for all things, good and bad, and, there, and, and, and Solomon really kind of puts a positive twist on this because we, really, we don't like to suffer the experiences of the bad, uh, but he argues that without the bad, we won't experience the beautiful and we won't experience redemption. And so life as a human is, is an experience of good things and bad things, and we need those good things in order to really appreciate and enjoy the good. Uh, Number five, problems of this world will continue from generation to generation. So when we see injustices, when we see corruption, when we see hypocrisy, uh, we shouldn't be surprised. These things will continue on and on from generation to generation because, uh, many of you remember, I've gotten a lot of comments on this, uh, all people are beasts and all of us are beasts. No one is excluded from this. We're going to see the, the people of the world being beasts to each other from generation to generation. Alongside of our pursuit for happiness and satisfaction is, is a sense of the whole, a sense of eternity. What is going on? What is God doing from beginning to end? And how do I fit in? What is my meaning? What is my purpose? What is the meaning of life? But this too, just like happiness eludes us and satisfaction eludes us, our sense of the whole and our place in it, the meaning that we find in life also eludes us. And ultimately, 
death awaits everyone. So in our general pursuits of life, we fail to find happiness, we fail to find satisfaction, and we fail to find the meaning of all things and our place in it, and then we die. And so his conclusions after observing all of these things is that ultimately satisfaction and happiness are gifts from God to those who fear him. It's a repeated refrain throughout the book. You cannot have satisfaction and happiness that endures without God gifting it to you. So it's an act of God's grace in our lives that we experience these things. And to experience happiness and satisfaction, we find that it is found in the most basic of things that most everyone has the ability to experience. Family and intimate relationships, food and drink, which are the products of our work, and then work, a meaningful work. If you have those few basic things, whether you're rich or whether you're poor, whether you're high class or low class or whatever, if you have these basic things, it is possible for you to experience happiness as a gift from God. So those are, some, those are really the big themes of the entire book. And then we, can come, then we come to this, this conclusion, which is really an epilogue. And so we see that, the, that the, the last half dozen or so verses have been tacked on. It's a secondary conclusion by somebody that wasn't the original author. And so this, this editor has tacked this on to make sure that the readers are clear on what they are to take away from the book. Because it's 12 chapters and it's it's sometimes very uh, difficult to understand exactly what Solomon is going after, um, but he makes this point. The end of the matter is this, fear God and keep his commandments. This is the end of the matter. This sums up all things that Solomon has been trying to get you to see throughout his 12 long chapters and as he meanders through all these various issues. And so in this, in this, in this epilogue, we see that to know God, to fear God, and to keep his commandments, it really involves two kind of integrated ideas. And the first one is wisdom. And so we read this, this passage, the words of the wise are like goads, and like nails firmly fixed are the collected sayings. They are given by one shepherd. So there's this, you know, if indeed God is the source of happiness and satisfaction in life, then you need to pursue God. And so one of the ways that the author is instructing us in how to pursue God is to pursue wisdom. Now, the word wisdom simply means skillfulness. And if a person has wisdom, they've got skill. And when they speak of wisdom in the, in the wisdom literature in Proverbs or Ecclesiastes or whatever it may be, it is talking about a general skill in living, living all of life. They've developed a wisdom so that they can skillfully go through life and conquer all of the challenges so that life doesn't completely overwhelm them. That's a, a wise person. And so there is several things to pay attention to and to seek after in this pursuit of wisdom. And the first one, I think, is to pay attention to your sense of happiness and satisfaction and to be honest with yourself in it. Okay, wisdom, that a lot of the wisdom that has been collected in these sayings in Ecclesiastes 
is made off of observations, observations that of his own experiences and then observation of the experiences of others. And I, I think that one of the ways that we can pursue and discover wisdom is that we are paying attention to our own lives. We are paying attention to our own feelings and to our own sense of things. And we need to be honest with ourselves. Are we satisfied? Are we happy? Or are we deceiving ourselves in thinking that we're or in thinking or in trying to convince ourselves that we're happy and satisfied, but we're really not. Is our life working out? And to take agency then in our life for things that we can change, things that we can learn from, things that we can grow in wisdom, and then to recognize that there are things in life that we've got no control over. And so there's some, just some observations in paying attention to our own lives that contribute to this formation of wisdom. The second way we develop wisdom are in these collected sayings. So these collected sayings are the, the writings that have been brought together. And so it seems like the, the writer of this epilogue is pointing to the fact that, that the Solomon has also written these Proverbs. They've been collected into the book of Proverbs. There's these sayings written in Ecclesiastes. Uh, there's it, Song of Solomon is also one of these collected sayings. And so these collected sayings serve a purpose, and they have two purposes, and he compares them to, to goads and to nails. And so goads were these devices that animal herders, shepherds, would use to direct animals. They're long pointed sticks, and they would use to direct the, the herds to places of safety or to water or to the pasture. And essentially what he's saying is that these collected sayings um, are sayings that for those who are pursuing wisdom, these collected sayings give some direction. Okay, Now, wisdom, as I just have explained, um, is something that we can learn along the way, but that usually means we're learning from our own hard knocks, difficulties and challenges that we face, and we learn from our trials and negative experiences. If we can understand some wisdom from people that have gone before us, we can avoid some of the troubles in life and skip ahead to develop wisdom and skill so that we don't have to experience bad things to avoid bad things. And eventually these, these goads and our own experience of developing wisdom brings us to the place where we're nailed in. Okay, We all have used nails, I'm assuming, so nails fix things in place. And so if you can think of, of the formation of wisdom as this process, it is really important to understand wisdom as a process. Uh, the first chapter in Proverbs really explains this well. It's something that we go from being simple and naive to prudent to, to then be wise and then wiser. It's this process, and it can be a fairly long process, but we've got to start. And the sooner we start the better life is going to be for us in terms of us being able to master living in this world. And we eventually get to this place where we're nailed in. Okay, The New Testament authors would call this maturity, where we're no longer being tossed to and fro by all these various experiences and doctrines and teachings. We're nailed in, we're fixed, we're solid. That's the purpose of these goads and of these nails that these collected sayings all speak to. And then it says that the source of these collected sayings is one shepherd. 
So how are these collected sayings from multiple authors? Because the Proverbs aren't just Solomon's. Um, there are people that contribute to these collected sayings, to this, to this body of wisdom literature. And he attributes it to this one shepherd. And so, first of all, how is it that all of these collected sayings are from one shepherd? And second, who is the one shepherd? Well, if we understand what Solomon has already said in the book of, of Ecclesiastes, as as God being the creator of all things, and as God being the creator of us, he has built into the world a wisdom. And if, and if wisdom is skillfully living life in this world, then, then God really possesses the secrets, so to speak, to living wisely. And so what we have also learned in Ecclesiastes is that God is not only the giver of happiness and satisfaction, he's also the giver of wisdom. And so God has gifted wisdom and understanding to those who have feared him and those who have pursued him. And so wisdom, even though coming from a bunch of people, can have a common source because the common source is, is God who created all things and has set in place a wisdom that should govern all of creation, including the people that live in that creation. Now, who is this one shepherd? Who is this one shepherd? Now, the, this is the first time the term shepherd has appeared in the book of Ecclesiastes. It was a common term used by not only biblical authors, but also uh, the Babylonians, Hammurabi, the king of, of, of Babylon in ancient times, uh, referred to himself as a shepherd of his people. Uh, the Greek poet Homer used the term and idea of shepherd to, to uh, explain the work of their leaders and their kings. And obviously we have throughout the Bible the term shepherd being used to refer to, to God. Uh, Jacob says in Genesis chapter 48, the very beginning of the Bible, you have been my shepherd. And he's speaking to God in a prayer. You have been my shepherd all of my life. David says in Psalm 23, which is a, one of the books in the wisdom literature, in the writings, the Lord is my shepherd. And the prophets extend this theme of God as shepherd so when I say the prophets, it's the historical books in the Old Testament. It's the major prophets that are prophesying all this doom that is going to come to Israel because of their unfaithfulness to God. It's the prophets that are saying, hey, here's what is going to come in Israel's future. They refer to the Messiah as the shepherd. And so the Messiah, and it's important to kind of see these connections here, and so in the, the book of Moses, the five books of Moses, the law, we have references to, to God being a shepherd. We have in the writings, God being a shepherd. We have in the prophets, them referring to this promised child that's going to be the deliverer of Israel, that's going to be the savior of Israel, that's going to be the conqueror of death, all the way back from Genesis 3. And so they expand this idea of, of Israel's leader, of Israel's God being a shepherd. And so we see that there is this, this concluding section here in the book of Ecclesiastes, tacked on after the whole book was originally written, probably at the time where they're assembling all of these books together to be the Hebrew Bible. And what, the, what this editor is wanting us to understand is that this book of Ecclesiastes, this book which is really a philosophy of life, 
is pointing to this Messiah shepherd, just like the law is pointing to the Messiah, just like the writings have been pointing to Messiah, just like the prophets pointing to Messiah. Here is a book that is directing us to understand that Ecclesiastes is pointing to this, this promised child, this promised prophet, this promised king that all of Israel has been waiting for. And so we see that here tied in with the rest of the Hebrew Bible. And it's important to ask ourselves the question, why is it that the leader of God's people, the leader of those who seek wisdom, is a shepherd, a shepherd of sheep. Now, sheep are not a very smart animal. Um, and there's this one, I have to just read this description of sheep that one scholar wrote. Sheep are not only dependent creatures, so dependent meaning that they rely on something else or someone else to provide for what they need. They're not only dependent creatures, they are singularly unintelligent. They are prone to wandering and unable to find their way to a shepherd even when the shepherd is in sight. So they are really dumb animals. And they need a shepherd to direct them to pasture. They need a shepherd to direct them to water and to food. They need a shepherd to direct them to themselves. And so we as people are considered as sheep. And so we've already seen that the author of Ecclesiastes has told us that we are all beasts, and now we are all sheep, these singularly unintelligent, wandering, clueless animals. And so part of wisdom, even the great philosopher Socrates said this, the most wise person is the person who understands that they are not wise. The humble person, those who have the fear of God, those who recognize that they are in need of wisdom from someone else are the wisest people. It always puts you in a place of humility and a recognition of being someone that needs to learn. And so that's what it means to pursue wisdom, to recognize that it has a source, and to find it, we need to find that source. And that source is this, this shepherd, this, this promised human being, promised from the books of the law, the books of the writings, the promise throughout the hundreds of years of Israel's history of this man who's going to come and deliver us from death and conquer evil and usher in um, an eternal kingdom and a place where all the nations of the world will exist in peace. Then we come to these commandments, because he says the end of the matter is this, fear God and keep his commandments. That refers again to the law of Moses and all the instructions and rules and commandments that were there. And really this is the same thing that he's explained in this pursuit of wisdom, because in the law, as I've already explained here this evening, the law is directing us to this promised prophet, you know, if you, can, if you remember when we went through the Pentateuch, if you were here during that time, we were in the book of Deuteronomy, and Moses is leading his people out of Egypt into the Promised Land. They have been rebellious their entire time since they left Egypt. 
And Moses says to them, hey, listen, God is going to bring to you a prophet like me, but unlike me, you're going to listen to him. You're going to listen to him. And so that's this promised prophet. And then God also promised a king, a king that would sit on the, the throne of Israel forever. A promise made to David, a promise made to Judah, one of the 12 sons of Jacob, which made up the tribe of Israel. And so the law, even though it had all these rules and all of these commandments, the, the meaning of the law was directing us to this, this child, this king, this prophet, who would usher in peace and conquer evil. Now, we see here in verse 12, it says, My son, beware of anything beyond these, these collected sayings. And then he makes this statement, Of the making of many books there is no end, and much study is a weariness of the flesh. It's not unusual to find that quote at the beginning of, of biblical books. And some of you are probably familiar with it. It seems like he's repudiating the need to read and study a lot or repudiating reading and studying a lot because it's tiring. It's tiring. And those of you that have endured high school, school, college, whatever, reading and studying a lot is wearying. Okay, But he's not repudiating the idea of learning and reading and studying. What he's repudiating and what he says is wearying is the pursuit of wisdom and the pursuit of books and the pursuit of other collected sayings whose source is not the shepherd. That's what's wearying. He's said throughout the book of, Eccles of, the book of Ecclesiastes that all things are wearisome. There is no end to the toil. And so what you have here is he's saying, listen, beware of any sources of wisdom, beware of any collected saying of understandings that are not ultimately sourced in this one shepherd. These are alternative sources of wisdom. These are alternative sources of, of goads and nails that are trying to direct you to life. And ultimately, if we believe what Solomon is saying, and if we're honest with ourselves in our experiences, we will recognize that we don't find happiness. And so if we keep pursuing other avenues and sources for happiness that isn't ultimately founded in God, who created us and who created this world, it's just going to be like all of those other pursuits of happiness. We're going to see that they're vain, that they're empty, that, that happiness and satisfaction just slips through our fingers like wind, which is, the, which is what vanity means. And so, again, it's not getting weary from reading too much. It's getting weary from pursuing vain things that don't bring satisfaction and happiness. We're at a time where we believe that our, our, our truths, our identities, our purpose in life comes from within ourselves. That's kind of the orientation of the world now. We no longer acknowledge a God as creator. 
We no longer acknowledge a God that has ordered the universe, that has ordered the world. We no longer recognize the fact that there's a, a human nature, a fixed human nature. We think that by our own wills and desires and political machinations, we can make ourselves and make the world into what we want it to be. This is the, this is the background. These are the underlying assumptions behind the, the uh, confusion around gender these days. That's not the main issue. The bigger issue is the fact that we don't believe that we have an identity or we have a meaning or we have a purpose that we don't, that, that's outside of ourselves. We can be who we want to be. We can become what we want to become. We can make this world what we want it to be. And so we need to discover for ourselves our own truths. We need to discover for ourselves our own identities and meanings. And we need to be, and, and these things are primarily coming from what we, what we feel. And we have this sense of need to be authentic or be, or be, and to be true to ourselves. And so if we have these feelings or if we have these thoughts about who we are or about who we should be or about who we want to be, to hear something that differs from that, we need to oppose because it would force us to be inauthentic. It would force us to be other, something other than what we feel to be true about ourselves. Now, and so we see the source of, 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 of our identity and of our meanings within us. And so we don't really see wisdom coming from the outside to guide us in life and to give us clarity as to who we are. Now, but we see it coming from within. It seems contradictory because what you see flourishing in, in online and in print media with bookstores or virtual, I mean, blogs everywhere, all this self-help, all this how to be this, how to be that, how to overcome this. So, and so it seems like there's all these alternative sources of wisdom that we are scrambling for and yet have a sense that these things need to come from within. Now, there are many conservative voices and critics that, we, that say, listen, our culture has gone too, way too far into, into a gross individualism. We are self-indulgent. It's absurd what we've become. It's absurd to think that we can define our own realities, define our own identities, define our own meetings. But Charles Taylor, who I haven't quoted in this entire series, so I thought I should, he spent a lot of time, Charles Taylor was a professor at Harvard and professor at McGill. He's a preeminent scholar around the things involving the transition that we've gone through as a Western culture where we acknowledge God but now are primarily secular. Where we could maybe acknowledge God exists or that the spirit world exists, but it really has nothing to do with our daily lives and it really has nothing to do with, with us. And while he acknowledges that there are a lot of problems with our current culture of individualism, that there, that there is still, a, there's a positive moral idea in this, in this idea of authenticity, in this idea of being true to yourself. He says that there's a danger in that if if everybody is forming their own opinions about what is good for them and who they are and their identities and their meanings, the danger of that is that it, it 
creates a, a neutral environment for a conversation. It neutralizes the conversation about what a good life is. Because if everybody has an opinion and a perspective of what is the good life, and there's no truth that's coming from without, but it's all from individual people, then who am I to say that your vision of the good life is not good? And who are you to say that my vision of the good life is not good? Since all of these things are dependent upon our individual feelings. And so his, his conclusion is that there are new forms of dependence. We are dependent upon other things. So whereas before we used to be dependent upon God, dependent upon Bible, dependent upon the church, now we're dependent upon other things. As people, insecure in their identities, turn to all sorts of self-appointed experts and guides, shrouded with the prestige of science or some exotic spirituality. We're not bound to God or religion. We're bound to other sources of wisdom, even though we think it's coming from ourselves. It's impossible to be an individual without recognizing that communities shape us. But again, there's something important to see in this idea that we have to be true to ourselves, that we have to be authentic. And I think it, I think it affirms what Solomon has been saying this whole time. There is, an, there is an inner impulse that we all have to pursue happiness, to pursue satisfaction, to pursue the eternity, what Ecclesiastes calls eternity. We have a, a desire to know what is, he, what is eternity about? What has God been doing? What is God going to do? And how do I fit in? That's an inner feeling. That's an inner feeling. And that inner feeling is pushing us to discover God. We may have all kinds of crazy ideas about what's going to give me meaning and purpose and identity and a sense of self. But as we pursue those, we will experience vanity, we'll experience misery, we'll experience unhappiness. But we still have this question within us that we need to resolve. And if we don't, and we're still calling people to fear God and keep his commandments, what will happen is that we will strive to fear God and keep his commandments, but it will be so, it will, we'll do it just out of this, this compulsion to obey, this compulsion out of a fear of judgment. If, 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 if our pursuit of God and our pursuit of wisdom is not coming from a sense of, of being called, of being driven, in search of these questions, in search of happiness, and yet we're still trying to fear God and keep his commandments, that's going to create another set of things that makes us weary. We're going to be weary if we pursue wisdom that is outside of God. But we're also going to be weary with a religion that is just based upon obligation and compulsion. It's got to come from within us a sense of conviction, a sense that we're being called, a sense that this is my path that God has put me on. And Charles Taylor acknowledges that. And so we, we, we want to avoid these two things that make us really weary. False wisdom that leaves people 
with what Charles Taylor said is, insecure people in regard to their identities, dependent upon a whole lot of other things, dependent upon self-appointed experts and guides that are shrouded with the prestige of science or some exotic spirituality, sources of wisdom that never really provide answers, and that never really provide happiness and satisfaction. That's wearying. But again, we want to avoid the weariness that comes with religion based upon obligation and just keeping commandments out of fear of judgment. That's why that, that, that weariness that comes from that religious obligation is part of the reason why we have the rejection of it today that we do. We, our culture's thrown out God because for years and centuries, a lot of it was based upon this wearying obligation. And so in the middle, or as an alternative to those two options, we have the one shepherd. And in conclusion, Jesus spoke of himself as this one shepherd. He says this in John chapter 10. He's interacting with some people that he's healed. Some of the Jewish religious leaders are around it. And he says, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. So if you're looking for a place to find happiness and satisfaction and meaningful life, what Jesus says is an abundant life, same ideas that Ecclesiastes has been talking about here. What Jesus is saying is that, listen, I can lead you to that place. I am the source of wisdom. I am the source of these collected sayings. Not all of these other sources that disregard God and pursue a wisdom that will not satisfy, nor is it just following rules and commandments out of obligation for fear of God. I am the one that will bring you happiness, a relationship with me, knowledge of me, I cre- he's, he's saying, listen, I created you. I know your inner feelings. I know your inner desires. Acknowledge me as your creator, which is what it, the author of Ecclesiastes tells the youth. Remember me in your youth. And seek, seek Jesus Christ for the fulfillment of these desires and feelings. Don't shut them down. Don't shut down these inner voices and these inner impulses God wants you to reach out to him through Jesus Christ to to fulfill those. He's saying, I can provide the abundant life. And he proved it in that he rendered death, this thing that we see repeated all the way throughout Ecclesiastes, he rendered it powerless. In Ecclesiastes, death holds all the power. No one can escape it. What we see in Jesus is the power to escape it, the power to overcome it. It's not the final word. And he says, if you seek me and if you find me, then I promise that I will give you that same power over death. And it's the same power that you can have to experience abundant life. Let me pray real quick.